Yes, it is, and welcome back. Tuesday, November 24th. I rarely do this. In fact, I, uh, very rarely. Um, but I must do this. It is the single best and most important thing written on COVID since March. And it's in the Spectator magazine, and it's by Heather MacDonald. She was the first to write way back in March questioning the shutdown and lockdown uh, theor- uh, theology of the day. And she's outdone herself in her bravery and what she's had to say and stand up to and against. And this is the best thing she's written. And I have to share it with you and Toto. Had King James's Privy Council contained a proto-Anthony Fauci in 1620, there might not have been a Thanksgiving holiday for the current day Fauci and his peers to cancel four centuries later. The transatlantic voyage that brought the pilgrims to Plymouth Rock would have been unthinkable under the stay-safe philosophy that now governs American life. Nearly half the 102 occupants of the Mayflower died in their first year year of settlement at Plymouth, sometimes at a rate of three a day. Such a mortality rate was predictable. The earlier outpost at Jamestown, founded in 1607, lost 66 of its original 104 settlers in its first nine months. By 1609, following the also predictable loss at sea of a ship coming to resupply the colony, starvation at Jamestown had grown so dire that residents dug corpses from their graves. You know why. Other early settlement casualties included the outpost of Roanoke, which simply disappeared. Overall, for every six would-be colonists who ventured across the Atlantic, only one survived. Trying to establish a new life in the new world was most definitely not safe. And yet the voyagers kept coming, driven by something beyond safetyism. Religious zeal, ambition, passion for discovery, the desire for greater freedom. Those Americans who later spread across the continent, whether as solo explorers or in wagon trains, likewise eschewed a safe, a, a stay safe philosophy. Today, we are strangling American society in order to avoid a risk of death so infinitesimal, roughly one thousandth of one percent for the majority of Americans, that it would not have registered in any possible cost-benefit analysis governing both notable American endeavors and quotidian activities over the last four centuries. Our current Thanksgiving Day mantras, stay within your pod, stay within your bubble, stay within your household, don't travel, don't share food, don't touch your family members or friends, speak only in hushed tones, make a mockery of the spirit that created a country that sustains so much human life. This present moment is less like that first Thanksgiving celebration and more like the Salem witch frenzy of 1692. To be sure, the coronavirus is real. Witches were not. The virus has cost thousands of lives, witches did not. But the fear that has gripped much of the population over the last year, whipped up by sundry experts and authorities, is as disconnected from reason as that emblematic burst of hysteria in colonial Massachusetts and other such panics throughout medieval and early modern Europe. 
The shared features of all such contagious fears event include the following. One, the belief in ubiquitous threat. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti has advised Los Angelinos to assume that everyone you encounter is infected. That's a quote. Under even most liberal assumptions of undetected community spread, however, only a small fraction of Los Angeles's population would be affected and currently contagious. As for the threat of death, most of the population faces none from the virus. The average age of coronavirus decedents is 80, which is four years higher than the average life expectancy for U.S. males in 2018 and one year under average life expectancy of females. Most decedents have underlying comorbidities. Up to two-thirds of coronavirus casualties have died of other causes by the end of 2020. Forty percent of U.S. coronavirus deaths have occurred in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. Sadly, death is already the fate of virtually all residents of such facilities, however much we may understandably try to defer it. Two, scapegoats and stigma. Public officials have piled on to those intransigents who do not wear masks in the great outdoors, blaming them for the spread. Outdoor mask refuseniks have been screamed at and shamed by citizen enforcers of the outdoor mask dogma. The media imply false causal connections. Quote, Wisconsin health officials reported more jaw-dropping COVID-19 infection numbers Thursday as people continued to flaunt recommendations to wear masks. But there is no evidence for open-air transmission, absent highly unusual packed settings and prolonged contact. Transmission, per the CDC's own contact tracing guidelines, requires a cumulative 15 minutes of close contact with an infected person in poorly ventilated or cramped indoor settings. In the outdoors, circulating air disperses any possible viral dose to the point of non-existence, even if most outdoor encounters were not too fleeting to be of concern. People who have recovered from the virus are shunned as pariahs despite their lack of infection status. Three, amulets and ritualistic gestures. The mask is believed to possess totemic power, even though there is little evidence that its use correlates inversely with community spread or that it protects wearers from infection. A new gesture is being added to the ritual of ostentatious plain air mask wearing, the supplemental hand defense. In the faculty housing area of the University of California, Irvine, masked walkers now regularly cover their mask with their hands if they see an unmasked passerby approach. No matter the large berth, each will give the other and their short-lived proximity. Four, magical formulas in the arbitrary exercise of government power. Once hysteria takes over, any expectation that public officials will also act according to reason gets discarded. New York's Mayor Bill de Blasio has long set a metric for reclosing city schools, a 3% infection rate among the tested population. He arrived at that number in conjunction with the teachers' union. How did the mayor and the union come up with it? We don't know. Is it related to anything real? By definition, no. 
The evidence is by now overwhelming that children have virtually no risk of dying from the virus, nor do they spread it to adults. A random sample of 16,000 students and staff in New York City schools yielded only 28 positive tests. None of those cases resulted in serious illness. The New York City school system, were it a freestanding community, would be among the nation's safest places to reside. Nevertheless, the mayor, along with other mayors across the country, has now reshut the public schools, guaranteeing that the academic skills of black and Hispanic children will fall further behind those of white and Asian. More racial strife and phony charges of systemic racism to follow. Virginia requires that children from age two onward wear masks. Such a practice, lacking any ground in any science, will have crippling psychological consequences. The rising caseload and the oncoming Thanksgiving holiday have triggered a new explosion of arbitrary government dictates. Oregon's governor is limiting social gatherings to no more than six people. How did she arrive at that number? By no known body of evidence. If it existed, presumably the six-person ceiling would be universal. Yolo County, California, where Sacramento is, has a 16-person cap on Thanksgiving and other gatherings, while Kentucky is limiting Thanksgiving to eight people from two households. State of California magnanimously allows a grand total of three households. Before celebrating such relative liberality, note that California requires that the lucky three social units, whose members must, of course, all be masked, only stay together for two hours. That three-household, two-hour ceiling applies even if the gathering occurs in a public park where the chance of transmission is at its lowest ebb. Oh, there's more? There's much more, and I'll give it to you when we come back. At Leibson Show, I am reading in Toto Heather McDonald's masterful piece in The Spectator, more Salem than Thanksgiving. Bear with. I think you'll appreciate it. Without any advance warning, Los Angeles County shut down all outdoor dining on November 23rd, signing the death warrant for thousands of restaurants and casting thousands of workers back into unemployment. Restaurant owners had invested thousands of dollars into outdoor heat lamps and other outdoor dining equipment. They will now have to throw out thousands of dollars of food. Los Angeles County has no evidence of any transmission amongst outdoor diners. It is reacting blindly to a rising case count, even though more than 72 percent of the new cases reported on November 21st were in the lowest risk category. People under 50 and nearly half of the 34 county residents who died of COVID-19 on November 21, per the usual over-inclusive count methodology, were over 80. Protecting those octogenarians does not require wholesale business destruction. The experts are so confident in their fear-induced hold over the popular mind that they feel no no compunction about self-contradiction. The CDC has acknowledged that there is little surface transmission of the virus, yet it recommends that should someone be so rash as to attend a Thanksgiving gathering outside his home, he must bring his own food and utensils so as to avoid touching his host's kitchenware. We are regressing further back along the civilizational path to medieval times when everyone carried around his own spoon on his belt. 
At least those medieval trenchermen followed the environmentally sound practice of reusing their spoons. The CDC advises that all utensils and plates be thrown out after the Thanksgiving meal, showing yet again that environmentalism is usually just empty virtue signaling. The experts fear no rebellion over rules that destroy the very thing that they purport to regulate. Bringing your own meal to Thanksgiving and not even sharing it cancels the entire spirit of the holiday. Thanksgiving becomes indistinguishable from those cheerless family dinners where every teenager microwaves his own chosen frozen food and then slinks back with it to the privacy of his bedroom and smartphone. Then we have the fetishes. Case counts have been the object of veneration for months despite near meaninglessness. The obsession with the case count is an implicit admission that the death rates have been a disappointment for they are falling rather than increasing. Currently, infections among the young make up the lion's share of new cases. In Ann Arbor, Michigan, for example, 61% of confirmed and probable cases are connected to the university there. Most of these cases among the young are asymptomatic. The infection is so mild that the infected person is unaware he even has it. The infections are being picked up thanks to mandatory testing in the college setting. It is not just the young, however, that are frequently asymptomatic. Across the entire population, a whopping 45% of cases are initially unknown to the bearer before a test comes in positive. A rising case count among the least at-risk population is not something to be feared since it heralds the approach of herd immunity. Males in the 20 to 29 age bracket without underlying conditions have a citing the CDC, as I have before, 99.9997 chance of surviving a coronavirus infection. Females in that age bracket have a 99.9998 survival rate. The risk of death is 630 times higher for individuals age 85 and over compared to 18 to 29-year-olds. Yet since the start of the pandemic, the media and their bevy of public health services have histrionically covered case counts, usually on an hourly basis, as if they signaled imminent doom. A curious thing has happened of late, however. We are only now learning that the summer was not a time of crisis, contrary to the daily headlines. That period is now being cast as a halcyon benchmark against which the current dark crisis is to be measured. Quote, there is a real danger in complacency, and we are seeing the effects of that play out in real time, an infectious diseases specialist at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School recently said in the Washington Post. Across the country, we have begun to see another increase in infections and deaths after a period of time with low transmission. Who knew? Neither the experts nor the media let on that we were even in a period of low transmission. And despite today's raging headlines, the current crisis is still largely anticipatory. Los Angeles's County Director of Public Health, Barbara Ferrer, has been leaning heavily on the promise of future disaster. Quote, this much of an increase in cases may very well result in tremendous suffering and tragic deaths down the road, close quote, she told the L.A. Times on November 12th. For now, however, the number of hospitals that are severely burdened nationally is small. At least a quarter of all cases now being labeled as coronavirus hospitalizations in the daily media account were likely admitted for other problems and only retroactively classified as coronavirus cases following a positive test. California Governor Gavin Newsom has put 94 percent of the state's residents under another stay-at-home order. 
but only 6% of the state hospital beds are occupied by COVID-19 patients, up from 4% in early November. Nationally, the case fatality rate and presumed infection fatality rate continue to drop. Then we have human sacrifice. Almost all the businesses being sacrificed on the altar of coronavirus fear are as innocent as the Vestal Virgins of old. The public health authorities have no idea what is driving the current spread. They have no hard evidence that outdoor or indoor restaurant meals are responsible. They certainly have no evidence that shopping is. And yet millions of livelihoods are being destroyed in the exercise of inebriating limitless power. Quote, we don't want you going into restaurants and sitting and eating outside, and we don't want you going into retail establishments either. Los Angeles's ubiquitous Barbara Ferrer pronounced, Ferrer has no basis for stigmatizing these establishments. Then you have the shaming of heretics and dissenters. Neuroradiologist, Stanford scientist Scott Atlas and the physician scientist who signed the Great Barrington Declaration have been denounced for challenging the efficacy of economic lockdowns, school shutdowns, and outdoor mask requirements. Their heresies have been borne out, however, by the evidence. Then you have false agency. The director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, a major purveyor of pandemic panic, claimed in the Wall Street Journal that the pandemic was threatening jobs and businesses. <clears throat> it's not the pandemic that's threatening jobs and businesses, however political decision-making is. COVID has also ascribed a power that it probably doesn't have. The New York Times has dedicated a special section to, quote, those we've lost from COVID, ignoring the many people who lose each day to cancer and heart disease. One alleged COVID casualty was a 101-year-old veteran. We are to believe that without COVID, he would have lived an infinite number of further years. Oh, there's more. There's more. We'll be right back. Welcome, welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I'm going to finish right here with Heather McDonald's piece, then take your calls and tell you about what I just saw on TV, my producer Bill's worst nightmare. She concludes, Heather does, an advanced civilization builds towards the future as the pilgrims and other New World, settle, new world settlers understood. It accumulates social and economic capital be drawn on by individual discoverers and entrepreneurs for further progress. Now, however, <coughs> we are cannibalizing our economic inheritance in the fantastical belief that government transfer payments generated from ever-increasing debt can substitute for private economic activity. Our capital, now being recklessly destroyed by arbitrary government fiat, will take generations to rebuild. We take for granted everything that hard-won prosperity has provided us, well-functioning services, dependable maintenance, the luxury of choice. We will miss such prosperity when it follows the fate of those millions of businesses whose loss is causing despair, substance abuse, and suicide. A mature civilization understands that risk is part of life and that there are higher purposes, even mere sociability, than avoiding death at every possible cost. No great venture can be accomplished if staying safe is life's guiding principle. Now, however, our elites mock courage and perseverance, explicit, explicitly repudiating the very virtues that built this country. President Trump, upon leaving the hospital after an infection from the coronavirus, admonished the country to not be afraid of the virus, 
in the Washington Post's words, and to not allow it to dominate our lives. That imminently reasonable exhortation, once expected in a leader, is still being denounced by public health experts and the media nearly two months later. If Americans do not repudiate this ethic of fear, future Thanksgivings will be even bleaker than this year's. Well done, Heather MacDonald. For those of you that want access to the article, um, follow me on Twitter. I tweeted it out. I'm at Seth Liebson, at Seth Liebson. Scott has been patiently waiting in Phoenix. Hello, Scott. Hi, Seth. How are you doing? I'm well, sir. How are you? Uh, Doing very well. Thank you. Uh, Anyway, I'm calling um, about the comment that was uh, put out yesterday. And my apologies if um, it was out of context. I just flipped you on after work. And uh, I understand you were probably emphasizing a point uh, when you stated that. Um, And I'm paraphrasing. uh, You cannot hold a gathering of seven or more for Thanksgiving dinner at your home. However, it's legal to gather and use or possess crack cocaine or heroin without consequence. Um, I believe this is the world we've come to. I said if you do it in numbers six or smaller. (laughs) Well, as a recovered addict, I I can't recall the last time six addicts got together for a gathering and enjoyed themselves. So (laughs) Um, anyway, I thought the statement, um, uh, didn't allow for discussion or a point to be made as to the uh, motive behind uh, decriminalization, which uh, actually I support. Uh, obviously, you've made um, a good argument for the motive behind limiting what we can do in our homes for Thanksgiving this afternoon. Wow, great article, great show. Thank you. Um, yeah, but I believe I understand the motive for uh, the former, uh, for the uh, former, the decriminalization of of. Um, hard drugs. So, um, as you know, jail is not a treatment, um, and we know this because of the recidivative nature of the offender, and um, I would say this would work, um, decriminalization, if the funding would go to preemptive measures um, or transitional measures and uh, long-term treatment for uh, drug addiction. Um, The second point, too, is... um, I think it was a few years ago I read that addiction uh, um, and uh, drug dependence was recognized as a mental illness. Uh, in the least, we know that addiction um, often carries co-occurring diagnosis of one or more uh, serious mental illness, uh, which are components. So I really view it as a decriminalization of mental illness and uh, a step forward in you know, rectifying a problem um, other than you know, incarceration. Um, but taking a, a broader look at this and, and uh, really getting help uh, to those that need it in a, in a comprehensive manner. Um, Scott, you've raised a series of exceedingly important issues, and um, they are not issues I, I shrink from discussing or want to discuss, and I think we should discuss them. Um, I think the analogy to decriminalizing a psychological disorder is not apt when you consider all kinds of things that are used as psychological or psychiatric defenses to certain crimes, um, whether those crimes are done violently or not. That having been said, 
I think we should also have a conversation, and I'm going to ask you if we can delay it till after Thanksgiving, about what decriminalization of drugs does for the addict and what it does for the society at large. I appreciate where you're coming from. I just want to discuss it further. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. I didn't mean to give Scott Sort shrift. It's a very big issue he raised, um, a huge issue, uh, the issues of addiction. And uh, I'm going to have a, uh, as I do always around this time of year, holidays, have a local expert on to talk with us, probably uh, probably uh, Steve and or Debbie Moak. Uh, we, we do an hour with them every holiday season. And um, one of the things I, I, I will just point out in passing is that um, I have not seen the municipality or state that has reduced drug use by lowering penalties against it. That's the problem, Scott. The problem is, as I have heard in from so many addicts, probably about 50% of them who have gotten recoveries, they didn't see the light until they saw the law. In fact, it was the ability of a law enforcement official to intercede in their life that got them into a recovery program or treatment. And I worry about experiments like we've seen in Baltimore, like we've seen in San Francisco, like we've seen in a few other quote-unquote enlightened places that engage in these um, in these efforts these efforts to mitigate their laws against drugs, which lead to the expanded use of drugs. The question of the addiction being a psychiatric or psychological disorder um, or problem is not one I argue against. What I argue against is its use to void the law. And the problem one faces when we're talking about initiates, that is, first-time users prior to the addiction taking hold, keeping in mind that not every person who uses will become an addict. Obviously, we know this. Thus, the science of it is debatable at some level. But the task is prevention, and the signal the law sends, and the tools law enforcement has to deal with interceding in behalf of or on behalf of civil society to stop drug, not only use, but trafficking. And the more you take away their ability to stop that, the harder it becomes for the municipality, the city, the state, as well as it does become the all the harder to stop the the um the the user who will fall into addiction the final thing worth pointing out and i don't know oregon law well oregon law well enough to know though i do understand they do have what is known as a diversion program of some sorts is that a lot of states now do have diversion laws Arizona was actually a pioneer in this. 
where possession of a drug does not necessarily land you in jail because you're quite right. It's not the ideal treatment. But you have the ability in Arizona once, even twice, sometimes three times, to void your conviction. Wipe your slate clean by going not to jail but to treatment. So these histrionics that some of these national organizations would have you believe about punishing mere users or mere possessors turn out on inspection not to quite be the numbers you would otherwise think. It's an infinitesimally small number of mere possession or using uh, uh, or, or substance using people that actually end up in jail. But it is quite often that arrest that gets them to recovery or at least on their first road to it. It's an awfully hard and long road, and I salute you in yours, Scott, as I salute everyone in theirs. That's why I spend so much time on the prevention end of it, because I know that for those who are gripped by the problem of addiction, how hard it is, how it is a lifelong process of many failures and many relapses, and if you're lucky, ultimate sobriety. I know how hard that is. And I have always been a preventionist for the very reason that knowing how hard it is, I don't want you to initiate. I don't want you to start. I don't want you to play Russian roulette with your or someone else's life. Because it is Russian roulette. You don't know which chamber will make the difference. That having been said, law enforcement has always played a key role in helping on that prevention side of things. And the more you strip them of their ability to do it, the more you strip the ability to prevent more and more substance abuse. We also have a lot of common sense issues to deal with around this issue. Drug use has been on the rise for too many years, and it doesn't have to be. We've known how to get it down when we wanted to as a nation. People think you can't win this. You can. We've done it before and not in the too distant past. We reduced drug use by 50% in this country from 1980 to 1992. The country got serious about it and did it. We know how to do it. If you reduce something, some problem in this country by 50%, homelessness, poverty, you name it, we'd be marching in parades. But we did it with drug abuse, and then we let up on it and forgot about it and left the argument to the public policy organizations that had vested interests in it and not sincere and serious substance abuse prevention organizations. And so it's been on the rise until last year where we started turning it around. And then we did something monumentally stupid, monumentally stupid. We engaged in a national and series of statewide public policies that you could not dream up as anything being worse for people in recovery. Taking away their jobs, putting them in isolation, confining them to homes, and stopping gatherings such as 12-step recovery meetings. And guess what? Use spiked. As did suicide. We have done 
monumentally stupid things this year from a public policy perspective. Monumentally stupid. And we'll be paying that price for years, for years after the vaccine, which will solve this problem by probably about 90% in the next three months. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, Hugh Hallman will be with us in the next hour, as he is every um, every Tuesday in our third hour, to talk politics, to talk COVID specifically, and take your calls as well. I think we can work in a quick one before we hit the national news. Tim in Phoenix. Hi, Tim. Seth, thanks for taking my call. You bet. Two topics you touched on, uh, and I just think it's a very interesting uh relative comparison in oregon they have decriminalized hard drugs if what i'm reading is correct it is so you can't get arrested now it's a civil offense i believe correct hard drugs yet you can get arrested up to 30 days in jail for having a gathering too large in your home I don't. I, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know what the punishment is. I know that criminal charges are a possibility, though, in Oregon for those for violating their 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 orders. So, yeah, that was the original point that got the call. You can ha- you can use drugs. You can use heroin or crack in Oregon so long as you are under six people doing so. But you can't have Thanksgiving meals at at the number seven, right? That yeah. was the point. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, I'm not one of these advocates. You hear some people say, well, the government can't tell me what to do in my own home. Well, actually, you, you can't cook in your house or some other things that you can't do. So th- this idea that, well, no one can tell me what to do in my home, that that's false. But but I do think the, the overreach with the, the... The priorities are upside down. The priorities absolutely. are upside down. Absolutely. And I just thought you, you touched on both of those. And I thought, boy, is that really a weird relative comparison yeah. of what can and can't get you into trouble? That's in right. Oregon. Right. Six heroin users in a room. Fine. Seven people sharing a Thanksgiving meal. Possible criminal violation. Right. That's the Maybe. world we live in. It's upside down, Tim. It's scary. It's scary that so many people are going away with it. Uh, getting away with it and going along with it. Uh, we'll talk about more of it with Hugh Hallman in a moment. I appreciate it, sir. As we go to break, let me remind the only supplement I ever take is Balance of Nature because one daily dose gives me tens of thousands of vital nutrients from 100% whole food plants, fruits, and vegetables. I know of nothing better outside or along with exercise than to boost my immunity, which is just a great thing to fight a virus in these times with. I love Balance of Nature. Been taking it for over a year. All organic. Fruits and veggies picked at the peak of ripeness. Take it once a day. Tens of thousands of vital nutrients. They have a great deal offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Call 800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code BALANCE to improve your health, improve your energy, Strengthen your vitality and boost your immunity the natural way with Balance of Nature.